Let's pray. Father, as we come this morning, we have so many things in our lives that call to us and say, look here, look, this is wonderful. This is incredible. Whether it's the technology that's in our life, impressive people in the world, powerful people in our country, famous people around the world, powerful governments around the world, movements of people calling to us and saying, look here, bow down here. God, I pray that today you would help and remind us that there is one majestic person that calls us to look here and look at me. God, I pray today that you would use today to remind us that there might be powerful armies in the world and there might be powerful people in the world and there might be movements in the world that scare us, but that there is nobody armed with strength like you are. There is nobody that can oppose you to stare you down and stop you from what you plan on doing. God, I pray that today you would use the truth of your word to remind us and call to us again, look here where true strength lies. Not in governments, not in armies, not in technologies. It's, it's in you. God, I pray today that you would use today to remind us that everything around us is temporary. All the people in our lives, all the things that promise to be permanent and to be trustworthy. God, I pray that you would remind us that you are the, the one who is from everlasting. You created the world. You will outlast the world. And so I pray that today you would call us to look to a, a true place of stability. God, who does not change, is a place of safety and stability for us. And so I pray that those here today who need a place of safety and stability would look to you and see that you are armed with strength, robed in majesty, and that you who created the world and will outlast the world are a safe person, safe God to trust. God, I pray that you would today call to us, many of whose lives are up in, up in the air. We don't know how things will turn out. We don't know what the coming days are going to hold. God, I pray that you would use today to say you that call to us and say, I know what the future holds and I will be with you. God, I pray for those in our church today, many of whom are dealing with medical emergencies or diagnosis, some of whom have been in the hospital or are going to be in the hospital again. Dave Allen, I think of in particular. God, I pray we know that you, we, we know that physical illness causes like emotional and mental stress and pain. They, those are the times in the middle of the night when we call out, God, how long? I pray, Lord, for all of those in our church who are dealing with those, those physical issues, the pain in walking, Maybe it's the pain in the spirit. God, I pray that you would use your word to comfort and to strengthen. God, I pray that you would remind them of the good that you will do through this and at the end of this for them. God, I pray for those whose home life, whether it's with a husband or a wife, kids or grandkids, brothers or sisters, whose home life is filled with strife. God, I pray that you would be a place of peace, a person of peace in their hearts and in their minds. God, I pray that you would strengthen them today to be a blessing and to do good in those places. Because hardship at home, parents, siblings, spouse, 
can cause us so much pain. And so, I, God, I pray that today that you would be that you would give strength to those that are dealing with those problems at home. God, I pray today for the churches, brother and sister churches in Morgan County that are gathering today. God, I pray that you're, you would be worshipped in his spirit and in truth. I pray that your word would be declared clearly and boldly. God, I pray that you would cause the disciples in those churches to grow, to be like Jesus, to love Jesus more, to hunger for your word. And then through them, God, I pray that you would use the churches in Morgan County to reach every person in the county with the good news of the gospel. I pray, God, that in this generation, every person who lives in Morgan County would get the chance through Bible-believing, Bible-preaching churches, get the chance to hear the good news that God saves sinners. I pray, God, that you would strengthen them for that work. And God, I pray that that, that same would be true of us here today. Through the words that we read and the word that is preached through the songs that we sing, that you would be worshipped, that you would be loved the way that you ought to, and that you would use your word to cause us to grow to be like Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. I didn't grow up in a steak-eating family. It wasn't until I was a little bit older that I realized steak is expensive, and when you've got a bunch of kids, you just steak's just not on the menu. If you don't have your own cows, that's not something that you do. So I didn't grow up eating steak, and uh, one time the kids had asked about it, and I was like, guys, I don't really know what to do. But in the last few years, the church has given us a, a cow, and, and last year, Jones Meat Locker, I said, this is kind of how we, what we do with, our, with meat, roast, and you know, some different things. I, I can do something with the brisket. And he goes, man, I can't, I can't cut up T-bones into ground meat. He goes, I can't do it. And so he gives us several packages of T-bones, and they sat in the freezer, and I had no idea what to do with them. And one of the kids was like, Dad, couldn't, couldn't we do something with those? And uh, so one night a few months back, Emma was going to be gone during dinner. And I was like, this is the perfect chance to do something with steak. You know, mom's gone. I kind of have the motto, buckle up, I want to try something. And if mom's not there, there's kind of no rails. So uh, I, I find out, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to get a screaming hot cast iron skillet. We're going to do it a little bit with this and a little bit with this. And so mom leaves, and so we do it, and it works awesome. The kids are like, this is the, some of the best meat I've ever had in my life. And I'm like flexing because I'm like, mom's gone, and dad makes the best meat of their life. So the kids tell mom about it, and she goes, oh, great. Why don't you do it one night for dinner for the whole family? And I'm like, yeah, the secret ingredient is a screaming hot cast iron skillet. And I'm going to do like seven or eight of them because there's so many of us. I'm going to do a whole bunch of those. And you guys can predict, mom's home and something goes wrong. Okay? And I, I, I do the right thing. I've got a screaming hot skillet. And if later on she explained what I did wrong. But I, I, I think that the steaks were not thawed quite enough so there were no flames, but the house filled with smoke to the point that the kids came up from the basement dressed as firefighters with like tubes and they're like, dad, what's going on? So to this day, now occasionally they'll be like, dad, dad, don't, uh, don't make steak. Dad, don't make steak. You know, we don't want the house to be smoky. So now because I'm unwilling to compromise on the screaming hot skillet, the only way I'm allowed to do a steak is if it's done outside, because, just in case I don't thaw the steaks enough. 
Because the, the lesson that I learned among others, hey, make sure you thaw the stakes in it, like several days in advance. Just, you know, do a few other things kind of right. And hey, stop when the smoke starts. Don't just try to power through it and say, and say well, this didn't happen last time. It'll get better. You know, don't do that. Well, but I'm unwilling to compromise because the secret ingredient is a searing hot skillet. That's what a, that's what a good steak needs is it's got to be super, super hot. I was thinking of that story because we're here on a Sunday morning. And if you ask us, what does God deserve from us? I think all of us know the right answer is like searing hot worship. God, what, what does God want from us? What does God deserve from us? You know, like a T-bone, you don't just cook it low and slow. Like, oh, it'll be okay. I'll cook it just like I do my scrambled eggs. You know, like a steak has got to be cooked a certain way. And I think you and I know if God is who he says he is, then he deserves like white hot kind of worship from us. Like hearts that are like not just, ah, I'm okay. You know, God, thank you for this and for that. And so my question though is, like, do you give that? I mean, you're in the deer stand. Is the thing that fills your heart God and the worship that he deserves. When you wake up in the middle of the night, maybe you've got a screaming baby, someone's got a nightmare, maybe you're the one with the nightmare, is your heart still got that white hot worship or is it just limping along? You, are, are you all the way at 10 or are you just, some days I'm just at a 1? Maybe it's because of doubt. Maybe because of disappointment. Maybe it's because of distraction. But the question I think that being in a church asks of us is, do I give God what he deserves? And if not, what could change me to do that? If God deserves white-hot worship, what could change me so that I don't need a certain style of music or a certain song to get there? I don't need a certain place to get there, but that my heart is right there on 10 all the time. If you're like me and your heart's not there all the time, today we're going to be looking at a passage that says this is a surprising way that God creates white-hot worshipers. Go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 17. In the weeks leading up to Thanksgiving, we're going to be going slowly through the book, or sorry, through the chapter, John 17. And John 17 is just after Jesus has celebrated the Last Supper and he's washed his disciples' feet and he's about to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Those are all famous stories that you may know and you may know those stories really well. But before Jesus gets to the Garden, right after he's washed the disciples' feet, he's been teaching them, having a conversation at the table with them, then he stops... And he prays. And this is what today we're going to be looking at. John 17, starting in verse 1. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, 
Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Let's pray. God, as we open your word today, help us to hear clearly what you have to say and what you want from us. And God, help us become those white-hot worshipers that you deserve. In Jesus' name, amen. These first verses in Jesus' prayer, I want to show you, call us today to worship Jesus whose glory gives, not just takes. I want to show you that this passage where we hear and listen in as Jesus prays to His Father. It calls us and says, worship Jesus whose glory gives, doesn't just take. I want to show you from these verses three reasons that Jesus' generosity causes us to worship. Three reasons that God's generosity causes us to worship. First, worship because Jesus shows us the generous character of God. Verses 1 through 3 lay this out for us. I want you to notice what Jesus' request is and what this teaches us about the character of God. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted or gave him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I want you to notice that his request here is a request to give me glory so I can return glory right back to you. These verses repeat over and over this idea of giving. That, that, and it shows us that in the very character of God, the giving and receiving of glory is what God is like. That's why it's so important that we believe and teach and preach the Trinity. That God in Himself doesn't just occasionally give things. And oh, okay, well God's going to bless us a little bit if, if He feels like it. But the very character of God we see in these verses is this giving and receiving relationship. The Father giving to the Son, and the Son giving to the Father. Then verse 2 continues on and says, For you granted, you gave Him authority so that He could give eternal life to all those you gave Him. This, this characteristic of God is this constant giving, not just taking. So, He says, just as you gave this to Me, and I've given this to them, Father, give Me the glory so I can give You glory. This shows us that the very character of God is not the idea of a God sitting on a throne with His arms crossed saying, bring me. Bring me stuff. Bring me stuff. But His glory is the kind that radiates out because it's so full and so generous and so kind. The glory of God honors and blesses wildly, we see in these verses, as the Father and Son are almost in this dance of glory. Father glorifying the Son and the Son glorifying the Father. Then them including people in that as Jesus gives eternal life to all who may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You see, this is not the way Satan's glory works. The glory of Satan and the the glory of the world says, bring me things. I'm special. Give me money. Give me honor. Bow down. Tell everybody about how great I am. Satan and his glory says, Bring this to me. 
take this from you. But here we see that in the character of God, the glory of God is such that it radiates out in blessing to people. And if this is in the character of God, then it's not temporary. And you and I don't have to wonder, is this how God's always going to be with me? Right? So we can sometimes think, well, God, God might be tired of forgiving. God might be tired of giving. God might be tired of blessing. God might have something better to do than to care about somebody like me. But here in these verses, we see that the very character of God is that his goodness radiates out from him. And so we can begin to count on the character of God and worship and go, God in himself, in his character, is generous. And rather than the God of the universe temporarily giving, we can see that if I come to God, I'm going to find a God who is so filled with joy and so filled with glory, he will overflow with blessing and goodness and generosity to me. You see, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, what is it that Satan said to him? He said, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world if you'll bow down and worship me. But that's not how God works in these verses. Satan says, I will give this to you if you bow and worship me. But the glory of God in these verses is that the Father glorifies the Son and the Son glorifies the Father right back in response. It is this constant relationship of giving and receiving which tells us that the generous character of God is something that we can count on day after day after day. So if you wonder, what will I find God to be like tomorrow or the next day or the next day? What if I try his patience? What if I come to him asking for him him for things again? What will I find him to be like? You will find a generous God who's so filled up with glory that he delights to give it to his people. He delights to give it to you. That you can know that if you come to God, he will be generous and he will delight in it. So then we can begin to look at our whole lives in a completely different way so that we begin to live our whole lives worshiping a generous God. And realizing that God himself gives. And so we too in our daily lives can look and see that in those moments where we stoop down to serve, to clean up messes that we didn't make, to bless and forgive those that have wronged us, when we stoop to honor those that can't return honor back to us, we find in those moments That this is what God is like. The very character of God is expressed in those moments and those places where we pick up trash for the undeserving. Where we clean toilets for people that will never notice. Where we sit with people that do not thank us and do do not even notice. That this is the very character of God. And so in every moment of our life, if you're a wife, if you're a parent, if you're a worker, if you're a volunteer you serve in the church, no place where we serve and bless is insignificant if the very character of God is to be generous and to bless. No act of of service and honor towards others is wasted if this is actually what the character of God is like. And so because then in those moments we come to realize what the very character of God is like. So the first reason that God's 
Jesus' generosity causes us to worship is because in his generosity, we find this is the character of God. The second reason that Jesus' generosity causes us to worship is worship because Jesus ties our good to his glory. I want you to look at verse 4. Verse 4, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Jesus' main request in these verses has been glorify your son so that I can glorify you. And in verse 4, he says, here's why. Because I have glorified you, Father, by doing what you called me and sent me to do. Which should cause us to go, what do you mean? What do you mean you finished the work? Jesus, what do you mean I I brought you glory by finishing the work that you gave me to do? I think what he means by this is not simply the act of preaching the good news, not simply the act of doing miracles and healing, doesn't feeding 5,000 people. It's not simply taking in sinful people and saying, you are welcome with God. It's not simply eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners, but it's all the work that Jesus came to do. All the work of redemption, he says, I am finishing it. This is how I bring you glory. 1 Timothy 1.15 says that the work that Jesus came to do was to save sinners. And if that's true, then in verse 4, Jesus says, Father, I brought you glory by saving sinners. The glory, Father, that you wanted, you're going to get because I am here saving sinners. And in that, Jesus ties everything that we need to the glory of God. And you go, Joe, why does that matter? The reason is because if Jesus is tying our salvation to his glory, then that means that we can trust it's not going anywhere because Jesus would have to give up on glory to the Father if he were going to give up on us. Jesus would have to give up on glory for his Father if he were going to give up on us. And so in this, we can worship because Jesus doesn't say, I am temporarily here glorifying God. And I just happen to be saving sinners. Here he ties those two things so tightly together that we can rest secure that our good is as secure as Jesus' motivation to glorify God. Jesus will always be glorifying his Father. And so we can trust that he will always be saving sinners. He's not going to get tired of it. He's going to get fed up with those that come and say, Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, change me. Jesus, bring me home. We can rest secure Because we're not just thankful our good and his glory seem to be along with each other, go along with each other. That Jesus ties them together there in verse 4. I have brought you glory by finishing. What is it Jesus said from the cross? It is finished. And so Jesus is tying our good to his glory. And so we can look at the generosity of God in our salvation and worship and say, this is what God has always been like and now he's not going to give up on rescuing and saving people like me. People like those that live in Manchester around us. Not like those that work alongside you wherever you work. In Jacksonville, in Roothouse, Whitehall. Wherever you find people, you find God pursuing His glory by saving sinners.
the first home that we bought was an older home, you know, I think it was 40 or 50 years old when we got it. And everything was really well made, except after about 50 years, things start breaking and things have to be changed out and things have to be fixed. And if you've started working on an older home, I imagine it's especially true if you get a 100-year-old home, you find that those screws that used to come out eventually just kind of fuse together. My, my least favorite thing in the world is a flathead screw. Like, they're never good for anything. Like, you can never get a flathead screw out of things. But when a, when a screw has been somewhere for 50 years and it's kind of rusted in place, you just can't do anything with it. You can get special tools. You can follow all the, oh, this is how to get that out of there. But eventually, you just can't get it out. Same way with plumbing. Eventually, you just, no matter how big your wrench is, you just can't get it off. You just got to cut it and get all new stuff. And I was thinking, because eventually those things fuse. And I was thinking of that because in this, Jesus is saying the glory of God and your good are fused and they're not going to be separated. So you can count on it. Satan's not going to come along with a big enough wrench to pull those two things apart. Your sin is not going to become so great that God gets tired and he pulls the two things apart. This passage says God's glory and your good are fused so you can count on him doing good to you. No matter what this week holds. No matter what the future holds for you in the, ne- in the coming year or the coming years. You can count on the fact that God is going to keep doing good to you. Doesn't that make you want to worship? When he says, I'm going to keep doing good to you. I didn't just create the world, but I love you so much that I am going to constantly and be continuing to work for your blessing. Even through the hardship, even through those lonely moments, even through the grief and the pain of all the years, God says, I'm never going to stop doing good to you because I have joined that to my glory. And so you and I are called to rest in that and from that worship. The third reason that Jesus' generosity causes us to worship is worship because Jesus is still giving. Worship because Jesus is still giving. Look at verse 5. He says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had before the world began. Glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had before the world began. Later in the New Testament, in Hebrews, it says the Father has heard Jesus' prayers. And so this prayer has been answered. Jesus has now been returned to the glorious place in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father with the same glory that He has always had. He is enthroned right now overseeing everything that happens in the world, everything that happens in the universe, every hair of your head, every sparrow that lives in the field, every flower of the field, Jesus right now has the glory that he has always had. He's not on the cross anymore. We don't worship a poor Jesus. Here he is still suffering. We have Jesus who is now seated in the position of honor in heaven, seated on the throne, and Romans 8.34 says what he does there. He intercedes before the Father for you. Verse 5 says, Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had before the world began. So we know Jesus is not on the cross anymore. He's seated in heaven. And from heaven, Romans 8 tells us, he is right now asking the Father to do good to you. If you're in Christ, 
That is the work that Jesus has from glory. That's not what glory in this world is like. They stand up front and they say, look at me, look at me, bow down and worship me, look at me. And Jesus from the place of glory sits at the right hand of his father and says, go and bless her. Father, give her your very best. Father, deliver her from temptation and despair and fear. Father, give her strength to get through this. From glory, instead of Jesus standing up and saying, bow down and worship me the way Satan does, Jesus uses his glory to say, Father, help him. Father, help him. Give him your spirit to help him believe your promises. This is what glory looks like. An enthroned Jesus who is asking for your good. And so these verses call us to not shrink back and think that God is waiting on us, hoping that we'll do something different, hoping that we'll bow down and worship Him, but instead God in His glory is right now bending over, looking at everything that happens in your life and says, Father, do good to her. Do good to them. This is what our glorious Lord reigning and ruling looks like. That is not what glory in this world looks like. But that is the picture that we have of Jesus. And ultimately, that's the picture that the entire Bible leads us to. Last week, as we went through Revelation 21 and 22, we found Jesus on the throne, feeding and wiping away tears and caring for people, we find in the Bible that glory, Jesus' glory is so powerful and so overwhelming that he spends all of eternity in generosity. That's how wonderful he is. And so the picture that we get of Jesus in John chapter 17, the picture that we get of Jesus in Revelation 21 and 22 is this glorious Lord who's far generous to sinners than he has any reason to be. And he says, because that's what I'm like. So do you see this glorious Jesus ruling and reigning in your life? I don't know what worries come to your mind as you go to the post office and you get your mail. I don't know what worries come to your mind as you lay in bed at night. I don't know what comes to your mind when you sit in the deer stand and you think through what the day ahead holds and the weeks ahead hold. But do you see this glorious Jesus Risen, reigning, and asking for your good constantly. Who says, I'm not surprised by anything in your life, and I'm not going to stop doing good to you. I'm not going to stop doing good to you. Because when we have that picture of that glorious Jesus ruling and reigning, I think that is the fuel that creates white-hot worshipers. The white-hot worshipers that Jesus requires, who don't need the radio They don't need music. They don't need a certain preacher. They don't need a certain detail to be right before they can worship. But it's instead in the middle of the night, I have a ruling and reigning Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father who says, Father, do good to Joe right now. Take care of him. Don't leave him alone. Give him the strength to get through this. Give him the wisdom to get through this. So that whatever place you find yourself, maybe home is a hard place for you. Maybe doubt creeps in in your life. And you're like, how do I worship from that place? This passage shows us a Jesus that is so generous 
that I think it creates the kind of worship that Jesus deserves. So my question for you is, do you do this? Do you have that white-hot love for God and not your own glory? Do you spend your days saying, can you believe how good God has been to me and how good He's promised to continue being? Is that you? Or are you like me? And you've got a million other things in your mind. Are you the one that says, no, I should get the glory. I need my wife and kids. I need the people around me. I need everybody to notice how great I am and bow down before me. Where is the good news for sinners like you and me who do not worship Jesus the way he deserves? The glory of Jesus in this passage is that Jesus doesn't just demand your white-hot love for the Father, but he gives you his the glory of Jesus is that he completed the worship God the, of God that you should have given. And then he died the death outside the city of God that you should have died so that you could be welcome to worship. The glory of Jesus is that he unites us to himself so that when he died, you died. And when you, he was raised, you were raised. The glory of Jesus is that he's not on the cross anymore and from his throne, he is interceding for your good right now. The glory of Jesus is that he's not done giving. Doesn't that make you want to worship? Doesn't that make you want to worship? And so this passage calls us to meditate on the generosity of God and count on it so that our hearts become white-hot furnaces of worship. But maybe today you wonder if you're included. You say, May, is the glory of Jesus for me, Joe? You don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You haven't worshipped God the way that he deserves. You have rejected and rebelled against him. And you wonder, how can I be included? The story of the Bible is that God made the world. And because he made it, he deserves worship from everybody and everything. But Adam and Eve and you and I and everybody after them said, God, we will not worship. That's the problem with the eating of the fruit is they would not love him and trust him. The Bible calls that sin. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is physical death in this life and eternal death, uh, I'm sorry, eternal death in hell forever. But the story of the Bible is that instead of leaving us there, Jesus came and lived the life that we should live and died the death that we should die so that everybody who simply repents of sin and takes Jesus, who says, I'm turning away from sin and I will take Jesus' record and his righteousness and I will follow him. That anybody who does that, he says, behold, you are a new creation. The Bible calls that being saved. Your eternity is no longer eternal death in hell forever, but it's eternal life in heaven with God forever. The Bible says that if you repent of sin and trust in Jesus, then you can know the love and glory of Jesus is for you. And so if that's you, let today be the day of salvation. Let today be the day of salvation where you say, yes, I am repenting of sin and trusting in Jesus, putting all my hope in him, and I will follow him as my Savior and my Lord. If that's you, then today can be the day of salvation. If you want to make that public, you can come forward at the end of the service. If you have questions about that, come, you can come and talk to me at the end of the service. You can come talk to me in the hallway. But let today be the day where you don't just hope for it, but you count on it. And you go all in, trusting in the glory of Jesus for you. So this passage, it calls us to worship Jesus whose glory gives and doesn't take, doesn't just take. I want you to imagine what changes in your own heart 
when your circumstances don't change, but you know that you have a ruling, reigning, generous God who is right now asking for good for you. Might be the hospital room or a doctor's office. I want you to imagine what changes when nothing else except that you know you have a ruling, reigning, generous God who is asking for good for you in that hospital room. I want you to imagine what changes when you're in your truck and you feel completely alone, filled with doubt, wondering where this is all going to go. Imagine what changes in that truck when the only thing that's different is you know that there is a generous Jesus who's not tired and he's not going to give up giving to you. I want you to imagine what happens in your home when your home is filled with the knowledge that the glory gives and doesn't just take. A home where you're not just trying to get equal amounts of work done. Well, I did this for you, you do this for me. Imagine what, home, what changes in your home when it's no longer the push and pull of you want this and I want that, but it's instead the glory of God looks like giving and giving and giving and giving. Imagine what changes in a home that's filled with that kind of glory. Imagine what happens in Manchester when we're not simply the church on the corner, the church that faces the square, but imagine what changes in Manchester when Manchester Baptist is known as the church that gives and gives and gives and gives. I think at that moment, we really become a God-shaped good news church. Let's pray. God, I thank you that we can count on the fact that you were generous before the world began and you'll be generous when the world is gone. You're going to be generous in the new heavens and the new earth. And so we can count moment by moment on the generous character of God. I pray that you would use that to make us worshipers. In Jesus' name, amen.